It is March 26, 1958. We are at the RKO Pantages Theater, just the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood, California. We've gone down to one location for the Oscars again, finally. Um, and we have a show that's hosted by everyone. Uh, Bob <laughs> Bob Hope is, I'm assuming, the main master of ceremony here. Got Rosalind Russell, uh, David Niven, James Stewart, Jack Lemon, and... Wait for it. Donald Duck is also amongst our host this evening. And uh, it is time. Just again, Donald Duck. I just want to really make that land. <laughs> we are honoring the films of 1957 at the 30th Annual Academy Awards. And it's time for the big award of the night. The envelope, please. And the winner is drum roll. The bridge on the River Kwai. I mean, I, I, I'm not surprised. The winner wasn't Donald Duck. I don't understand. <laughs> um, why slash how 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 how? This I don't reminds know. me of like 2001 yeah. when they brought in the animated category and they had like Jimmy Neutron and Mike Wazowski sitting in the audience and it was like a whole thing. But like, did they do that back in 1958? I don't know. You know, uh, it, it says something about it being pre-recorded or pre-animated segments. So what I'm assuming they did is they just had some some stuff that was made ahead of time. Um, I don't know if it was like uh, Gene Kelly Anchors Away style or sure. or what, but... Um, I you see know, that, like he's dancing with the mouse. Yeah. Oh yeah, like sort of like Sailor Donald Duck coming out to present some awards, I guess. <laughs> Here we go. I got it's on the Oscar website, and I'm going to read you verbatim what it says on Oscars.org. Okay. Donald Duck hosted a seven-minute combined live-action and cartoon history of the movies. Oh, I kind of love that. Okay. That's amazing. I wish. I I don't. They don't seem to have, I, I don't see a video coming up um, automatically when I YouTube. Uh, so uh, if anybody has a link to that, if you could, if you could send that to me and Sam on Twitter or Insta or whatever, we would love to see that. I would die to see that. Uh, we're still at five nominees, and this should be kind of interesting for us, Rance. This is like the first time we've had all five Best Picture nominees line up with the five director nominees. Yeah, this hasn't—has this has this never happened? I don't think it has. Maybe I once. Don't think, well, I mean, Maybe. let's see. We've had five nominees since uh, 1944. 1944? Yeah. Um, and— I can't think of a time like, that I they completely lined up. There's usually at least one, you know. Yeah, there's so. usually one that's, yeah, for sure. No, this, I think this might be the very first time that they all line up. We and should, we also, we should keep ahead. track of how often this happens while there's five nominees. That would be We really should. The only other time I can, like, remember it happening is in uh, 2008, the year of um, Milk and Some Dog Millionaire. Slumdog, yeah. Uh, those were all the same uh, five for five as well. Uh, but I think this is the first time it's happened. It happened at the Oscars. Pretty cool. Well, I'm excited about about talking about this year because I, I think I, I'm pretty um, – I've seen four of the five picture director nominees. Ooh, wonderful. I know. 
Um, and I have seen uh, both of the uh, main acting winners. I have not seen Sayonara. Um, that is where my my hole is. And it did win both um, supporting actor and actress. Uh, big deal when we... I mean, I don't know if we just want to kick it off by talking about supporting actress first. Let's do it. Um, Let's kick it off. Supporting actress. This is a very big deal. Yes, this is um, a historic deal. This is the first uh, Asian American to um, win an Academy Award. Uh, the first uh, Asian of any uh, background. Um, and uh, she's Japanese. Uh, wins uh, for her supporting role in the movie Sayonara, um, which uh, stars Marlon Brando. Um, and James Garner's also in it. There's a few uh, notable people, um, including another one who we will talk about in just a minute. Um, and also Ricardo Montalban, which I will say the Montalban Theater is his namesake in Hollywood, which oh. they're currently doing uh, outdoor socially distanced movies in case you oh, are love interested that. in seeing a movie in a safer way right now. Sure. Um, but uh, yes, she um, has a very interesting little history. She also uh, won a Tony Award. Um because uh, she was in the Broadway musical Flower Drum Song. Right. Um, and uh, she uh, was also on the TV show The Courtship of Eddie's Father, which was a long-running sitcom in the 1960s. Um, and, uh, and so she had this very... Um, uh, this very uh, storied history for somebody who was Asian in the 1950s, uh, really breaking a lot of ground. And, uh, you know, we talk about, we talk about, justifiably, we talk about Anna Mae Wong and the impact that she had on Hollywood for Asian Americans. But um, this is the actress uh, who really uh, broke the mold. And I realize that I haven't said her name yet. Um, probably because I'm going to butcher it when I say it. No, I believe uh, in you. I believe in you. Uh, Miyoshi Umeki. Yeah, that's All that's right. right. You did it. Look at you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, just it, it's I I haven't seen the movie, but uh, historically speaking, I really like this when like it 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 sends a message. Uh, she does have um, some pretty stiff competition, I will say, mm, yes. uh, from some people who we uh, probably are more familiar with. Um, two different people are nominated for um, Peyton Place, uh, Hope Lang and uh, Diana Varsi. Hope Lang had a pretty successful little career in the 50s and 60s, um, playing uh, mainly supporting roles or the girl in a few uh, movies, but she has a uh, very prominent role in Peyton Place, uh, playing uh, a, a a very uh, it's it's very adult for the time period because she is a, a person who is uh, sexually abused in the story by her stepfather, I believe. Yes, um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but oh no, you're right, you're very right. Okay. Did you watch it recently? So you not recently, no, but in the past, and yeah, it's okay. very much like what we talked about earlier with it being sort of like a, almost like a soap opera for the 1950s and oh. in a mainstream mainstream movie, you know. Um, and 
that tie, Peyton Place is significant to talk about because of the lead actress. So we'll get that. We, we will. will get to that very soon. Um, but and uh, Diana Varsi uh, plays Lana Turner's daughter in the movie. Um, and there's also a whole story about her parentage. Uh, that's a whole nother situation. <laughs> um, we got Carolyn Jones. And I um, I think it's interesting. She's credited as the girl in the movie. Um, I would love to see this film because uh, it's written by uh, Patty Chayefsky. And, oh, so this yeah, is The I, Bachelor Party. Yeah, I don't know much yes. about it at all. And I do like him. It's also uh, Delbert Mann is directing. He's the, you know, the guy behind Marty. Oh, wow. So the uh, same like cr- uh, creative team behind Marty is The Bachelor Party. Oh, wow. And Carolyn Jones was in a bunch of movies, I should say, mm-hmm. um, in the 1950s. But most people probably know Carolyn Jones for what she did on TV um, because she was Morticia Adams in the 1950s TV show. Oh, my gosh. That's accurate. Oh, wow. I had no idea that she was an Oscar nominee. Crazy. So that's Carolyn Jones. Uh, Elsa Lancaster, one of my favorite character actresses of the period. Um, A lot of people probably know her for playing The Bride of Frankenstein. Um, But uh, she made a career more of playing... Uh, dodgy maids and spinsters and ants and anyway she plays a witness for the prosecution I will talk more about in a little bit but I just want to say it's one of my favorite movies Um, and she plays uh, her real life husband Charles Lawton's nurse in the film and when I say real life husband I mean they were married, <laughs> but, but <laughs> it might have I been know. a marriage of convenience. convenience. A marriage. And I will say Elsa Lancaster's amazing in the movie. She's hilarious. She's basically the comic relief in the film. Um, has a very fun little rapport with Charles Lawton, who never wants to do anything that he's supposed to do for his health. And, um, and I would love for her to have an Oscar, but the historic nature of this oscar makes it very hard for me to see anyone else getting this oh i totally agree with you yeah i am a huge fan of wooden's for the prosecution as well and i think we talk about it more oh i know we we will get into it first of all we should sidetrack on it just uh, just a tad what do you make of witness for the prosecution not getting a screenplay nomination well it should it definitely oh my goodness right um it is one of the most cleverly plotted movies. Um, it's yes. based on a play. Um, and I will say, like, I was primed to be a witness for the prosecution fan because I read so many Agatha Christie books when I was in high school. Um, it, she's my favorite author. I have so many. I've read dozens and dozens. And um, this is one of her plays. She didn't only write... Uh, books she also wrote plays and um so this movie was adapted from a stage play that was very successful she actually has the longest running stage play of all time called the mousetrap which has been running for like 80 years Mm -hmm. i'm sure it's on hold right now but we'll (laughs) zoom again um and i believe the ending was slightly different in the play for witness of the prosecution okay um and then it would change a little bit because they had to expand it 
because it was um, it was a one act. Oh, and they, gotcha. They expanded it to a full length film, um, but. No, but yeah, uh, the writing I think is incredible. It's a huge part of this movie's success, you know, and I truly believe it deserves a nomination. Of the director. And the director. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, it, it got a Best Picture nomination. The cast was nominated. The director was nominated. To me, it would only make sense to see it also align in the screenplay categories as well. It's However, it's very bizarre that it's not there. Especially, I mean, like, it. it we have, um, because it's adapted screenplay, is mm. where it should be, you know, we have other, uh, well, but there's one other movie in here that isn't nominated. I will say, Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, I have also seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, uh, it's a John Huston war movie. It's really good. It would be another great opportunity to give Deborah Carr an Oscar. But, um, uh I know. To me, yeah, it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna take one of these nominations away, I would almost say Peyton Place, just because it feels a little dated now looking back. Yeah, I don't think Peyton Place has as strong a screenplay as. No, I don't very, either. It's very bizarre to me. And you want to talk about twist endings? <laughs> I mean, this is. I'm not kidding, guys. Go watch Witness for the Prosecution. It's one of my favorite movies. I've seen oh, it yeah. multiple times. And each time it works, even knowing what the ending is. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's it's really, really quite wonderful. I totally recommend it as well. And I love Elsa Lancaster's nomination here. It's so fun. And I just, I love that there's the history between Elsa Lancaster and Charles Lawton, their marriage. I mean, these two actors made 12 movies together. This was their last one. And they both received Oscar nominations for it. I think that's pretty great. But going by, back to what you said about Miyoshi Umeki, I totally agree with you. This this Oscar was hers to win, and it feels right, and I love that. And there's a tie-in, as you said, to Best Supporting Actor. Miyoshi Umeki, um, her husband, well, I should say, the guy she wants to get married to, um, is Red Buttons, and he wins Best Supporting Actor. I mean, Sayonara is this uh, kind of a wonderful little movie all about interracial marriage before that was really such a hot-button issue with interracial relationships technically that isn't allowed on screen at this point in time so the movies are really pushing it to allow that of course i think the production code was very specifically wanting to avoid interracial relationships at this point between black and white people um and in the 50s the the they started chipping away at other types of interracial relationships which you know also i mean Right now, the most popular television show in the country in the 1950s has an interracial relationship at the center with uh, I Love Lucy, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, like, that was chipping away at some of those convictions. Sorry, I, I was walking during that entire point because I started smelling something burning, and I was like, oh, right, I was cooking chicken, and I completely <laughs> forgot. Um <laughs> <laughs> was like why oh my gosh i'm cooking something um it's been my life recently um but no i uh i just wanted to insert that the ending of sayonara i watched some clips i haven't seen the whole movie but i did watch some clips just to kind of see what their performances were all about and it's heartbreaking what these 
to go through. You know, spoiler alert here, if you're going to watch Sayonara, maybe fast forward a little bit here, but Red Buttons and Miyoshi Umeki end up killing themselves because they cannot get married. And I think it's kind of beautifully poetic that they both walked away with statutes for <laughs> those performances. I love that. Thanks for spoiling the movie for me. You're welcome. It's what I do best. Um, but should we move to supporting actor? Let's just get into it. Well, we just kind of talked about red buttons a little bit. Um, we did, yes. Um, we also have um, a nomination for A Farewell to Arms, which is really interesting. Uh, Vittorio Di Sica. Mm-hmm. Um, because Farewell to Arms is a very critically derided film, which is why I've never seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, so and Vittorio, Vittorio De Sica is also mainly known as an Italian filmmaker, uh, director, and writer. So not acting isn't his first. <laughs> Maybe it's that, like, oh, let's, this is our opportunity to nominate somebody who's influential somewhere else. Oh, definitely. I think so, no. too. Uh, we also have two nominations for Peyton Place. Uh, Arthur Kennedy, who's a very uh, storied supporting actor in uh, movies uh, for decades and decades. Oh, yeah. Uh, he uh, received several uh, nominations, um, but he uh, never won. Poor thing. True. He sure didn't. <laughs> and then we have... Russ Tamblin, who I'm only going to assume is Amber Tamblin's grandfather. It's her it's her father. Oh, just father? Yes. Russ Tamblin, you actually know, even if you don't know, you know him. Mm. Um, he's one of my favorite. Okay. First off, yeah. he is the youngest of the seven brothers and seven brides for seven brothers. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and then... He um, he made this and got an Oscar nomination. And uh, so he started getting some more work with his MGM contract, including getting cast as Riff in West Side Story. Yes, 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 yes. There uh, we go. And then, uh, you know, when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. Um, and so we'll talk more about him later. Mm-hmm. Um which I really like him in that movie, and I don't know where his nomination went for that film. And uh, then, uh, but we'll talk about that later, obviously. Um, and then he is in the 1963 version of The Haunting. Sure, yeah, the Robert Wise version, absolutely. Where he um, he plays the uh, like the young kid who doesn't believe in ghosts, basically. Right. Um, and then later in his life, he was, he's still alive, um, as of this recording. And he, um, was in both the original and the reboot on Showtime of Twin Peaks. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, he's had quite the career. That is for sure. Yeah. He's had a great career. Um, his only Oscar nomination, but... But I really like Russ Tamblin. That's the point. Sure. And the final nominee uh, was from The Bridge on the River Kwai. We have Seisu Hayakawa. And what was so funny when I was watching um, this movie again, I, had, I hadn't put the connection together that he is in Swiss Family Robinson. He's the main 
um, pirate who they have to like battle at the end. What? Oh my gosh, you're yes. right. Yes, isn't he? Oh my is. gosh, you're right. Isn't that hilarious? I hadn't put that together, and then I, I saw him. I was like, that is exactly who that is. He's the main bad guy, the bad pirate, who you end up feeling really bad for at the end of that movie, and you ultimately feel really terrible for him in this movie as well. I think Seizu Hayakawa in this movie is so incredible. He really goes through quite the transformation and journey in this movie, starting off as the, you know, the evil um, uh, uh, prisoner of war camp boss who just, um, you know, wants things to happen his way. He wants all of the prisoners to build the bridge on his time and his way, and it's not working well. And he's so angry and so frustrated until he finally listens to the British soldiers and, you know, he kind of comes around to them and to humanity i guess in general and it's a really beautiful performance to watch i really quite really enjoyed is. it i i think i'm gonna have problems talking about him without getting too much into the movie oh yeah very very i true. think a lot of my interpretation of the film is going to be based in his relationship with uh anthony quinn um so alec guinness did I say Anthony Quinn? <laughs> yes, but that's okay. I was gonna say I meant Wayne Alec Guinness. I was, I was say, seeing I miss... Alec Guinness and I, I under I know the difference between the two. They just both have names that start with an A. They do, and to be fair, I wouldn't be surprised if Anthony Quinn had showed up in Bridge on the River Kwai. He seems to be in every movie and wins an Oscar for anything. So Maybe I just sense. expected him to be there. I just assume he's there and I just just, just didn't notice, you know. <laughs> so um, him and William Holden are like in every movie in the fifties. Uh, but Truly. it's it's fine. It's fine. I meant Alec Guinness, the great Alec Guinness, Obi Wan himself. He would hate me for mentioning that. Oh yeah. Did not like Star Wars, but <laughs> well, it seems like he kind of quarreled a lot on um, several of his movies. Uh, but we'll get into that a little bit later. My only qualm with Best Supporting Actor is that there were no nominees from 12 Angry Men, and that really surprises me. It's chock full of, maybe it's just d deciding on one is the difficult part. I, I have it. You you nominate Lee J. Cobb, obviously. Or oh. even Henry Fonda. I don't care. Like, literally any of them. They're well, so Fonda good. Henry Fonda would have gone lead, I would imagine, right? I mean... I mean, it's, I mean, it is, it's, the thing is, it's a group effort. It's just that exactly. he's, like, technically the lead, you know? True. Okay. No, but personally, I would nominate Lee J. Cobb. He goes through the biggest, you know, journey in that film, I think. Um, but yeah, I just I was kind of curious that, again, a movie gets the Best Picture nomination, direction, screenplay, and misses out on every acting category. I just, it kind of threw me for a loop, but, you know. You know, I, I would have liked, I mean, like, I, I haven't seen Red Button's performance, but I, I would have liked more than having the two, the couple, when supporting actor and actress, I would have liked to have had two Japanese um people when that would have been a nice no i agree with you if i were picking the oscars it would it would definitely go to seisu hayakawa as well i think he is phenomenal in that movie and part of the reason he is so phenomenal is uh, because i mean like basically the bulk of his scenes are with alec guinness mm -hmm. who does win best actor, actor. here we go <laughs> um and alec guinness is is this is it makes total sense that he wins this Oscar. I, you're not going to get any complaints from me on this one. Oh, no. Because this is his defining role. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, um, it's so good. I wrote down, yeah, Alec Guinness won. Duh. <laughs> I don't think there was going to be anybody else. However, I will say, do you think William Holden should have been here as well? Kind of like a double nominee in Best Actor, sort of like what happened in From Here to Eternity? 
Do you think both I deserve think William Holden's really good in the movie, but I don't think he does anything I haven't seen him do. And I, I don't think it's better than the movie he should have won for or the movie he did win for. I agree. Yes, I think, yeah, I think Alec Guinness really outshines him here. And I also feel like there are parts of the William Holden storyline that seem awfully forced and a little boring. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, but he's, everything not is... the, he's not the best part of the movie. Alec Guinness is the best part of the movie. And sure. I, I say that fully acknowledging that I appreciate shirtless Will, William Holden anytime I get shirtless William Holden. Oh, Don't yes. get me wrong. <laughs> and he had to wax his entire body because he's very hairy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was very angry that they made him wax his whole body because he was shirtless for quite a few of the scenes. But we have Alec Guinness here who's triumphant. And as you said, he was... He is kind of a diva, but I think it's almost to his credit, in my opinion, because I feel like um, what he was a diva about on set, from what I read about the Bridge and the River Kwai, I really side with him on pretty much everything. There was one story I read about well, where... Well, you're a diva, too, so... Quite, and I also very stubborn, and I feel like he's very stubborn, so I, we kind of go hand in hand that way. But there's the... Um, I feel like the scene for Alec Guinness, they're going to show, like, you know, his Oscar montage for this movie. It's a scene on the bridge after it's built, and he's talking about his career in the army as, you know, Seisu is watching behind him. And there is a story about how in that that shot, um, David Lean films it from behind, right? You're watching the back of mm -hmm. Alec Guinness as he's talking out, and Alec Guinness was mad at David Lean. He was saying, you know, why why are you shooting it from behind me? You can't see my face for 80% of this scene and this wonderful monologue that was written for me that I'm performing incredibly, incredibly well. And <laughs> David Lean was like, how dare you talk? You know, I'm doing what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Don't tell me how to shoot the movie. And I agree with Alec Guinness. When I watched the film, before I even read about this story, I wrote in my notes, why are we watching the back of Alec Guinness's head? He, this is like, in my opinion, this is like some of the best dialogue in the whole film. And we don't even see his face. It really bugged me. So I totally understand where Alec Guinness is coming from. And I agree. I think it's a mistake. What do you think? Um, I mean, it didn't, it didn't bug me while I was watching it. I'm probably coming from a different perspective uh, as, less, as less of an actor shell than you. But um, uh, I will say at the very end of the film, he is given some very difficult actions um, to pull off. Mm -hmm. A series of incidents that involve killing someone. I'm like, okay, I'm telling you one. Spoiler, skip ahead, 30 seconds. Uh, that involve killing someone, him getting killed, and falling on an explosive device and setting it off. Um, and that sequence could be extremely contrived if the wrong person was performing it. Mm -hmm. But he pulls it off, and this is when he's not talking, he pulls it off perfectly. And I mean, it's hard to faint <laughs> in a way that looks natural, and yet he does. I, I don't know. Um, in addition to being perfect with all dialogue, I just want to say that physical bit at the climax of the film, he he pulls it off and the movie wouldn't work if he couldn't pull that off. 
Oh, it's very true. I mean, the last five minutes, you're right. Alec Guinness goes through the whole gamut of emotions. You know what I mean? Like, and you see it all across his face. And I guess that is why I would have liked to have seen his face uh, up on the bridge as well. He shows emotion very well. And I think it would have benefited the scene and the sequence had it been filmed from the front. But, you know, it wasn't. And we do have other people whose faces were filmed in this category. Uh, just um, like Charles Lawton. He's literally, I'm going to be honest with you, I think the only other person oh, yeah, who, Charles who stood even, like, even a chance at winning this Oscar was Charles Lawton. There's no way Anthony Quinn was going to win again for a third time. Um, and if Charles Lawton didn't have an Oscar, I might be like, I don't know. But because he does have an Oscar... Oh yeah, I'm okay. Listen, but he is he is unreasonably good in Witness for the Prosecution. He, he ugh, in just so the good. best way. He's almost like doing the male version of Betty Davis in this, where he chews the scenery to pieces, but it's so delicious that you just go along with it. Yeah, and it doesn't come off unnatural. It's so it takes such a a consummate performer to chew the scenery in a way that feels human. I don't know how to explain what I'm it's saying. It's genius. It, it can be summed up perfectly within like the first scene when he's coming back and you know you're realizing that he's his heart is not great. He needs to take it easy. He's not supposed to take Yeah, he's not supposed to take any more murder cases and all he wants is to smoke a cigar, but he can't have a cigar. So the only reason he invites this guy who's going to stand trial for murder and his you know, lawyer into his uh, business is because they have a cigar. And all he wants, the entire scene as they're discussing uh, the death of this woman, is to smoke this cigar. And I think that's just so simple, but so wonderful. And you see it in his eyes. Like, yes, he's engaging in conversations with people, but he always knows where that cigar is, and it always comes back to that. And I just think it's, it's brilliant. Like, such a great way to set up a character. Brilliant. And then, of course, whenever we get to the climax of that film, and, you know, he has all this demanded of him in explaining this incredibly convoluted murder story, he, he meets it with a plum. He's, like, so... He, yeah, he's genius. I yeah, I truly, truly and you love know, him in this movie. He was a genius on a lot of levels because a movie that we didn't talk about last year that was not nominated but should have been in 1956 and it was certainly better than the winner for 1956 is a film called The Night of the Hunter, yes, which is yes, yes, the yes. only movie directed by Charles Lawton. He's not in the film. It's just directed by him. It stars Robert Mitchum as like the ultimate bad guy. Uh, Shelley Winters is in it. Um, uh, Lillian Gish is in it, one of her later sound supporting roles. Um, and basically, it's just Robert Mitchum terrorizing these two children's, uh, two children's, two children um, <laughs> who uh, are just trying to escape him the whole film. It is so disturbing. It's one of the creepiest little movies I've ever seen in my life. And um, just wanted to say that because I wish he had directed more because Charles Lawton clearly has just several layers of talent. Oh, yeah. Very, very, very multi-talented. And that's why, yeah, I truly believe this was, uh, I mean, I don't think anyone was, was going to beat Alec Guinness, but if someone would have, it would have been Charles Lawton. Which but we too. get to, yes, we get to go to our favorite category now. And we have uh, a young, budding actress 
who delivers an astounding performance in a little movie called The Three Faces of Eve. This is the birth of Mrs. Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward. Um, I love this movie. It's phenomenal. I think she's absolutely wonderful in it. Um, can't give her enough praise. I think she's perfect. I mean, it's such a difficult role to pull mm. off. Um, if you haven't seen The Free- Three Faces of Eve for the viewers, uh, it's called The Three Faces of Eve because it's a woman who's dealing with multiple personality disorder. She has three different distinct personalities within her that she switches between at random. And it all, uh, the movie is the exploration for basically why she split into those personalities, um, which of course we get a nice breakthrough towards the end of the film that explains everything. Um, this is her big breakout on the scene. Um, she would become one of the leading actresses of the late 50s and 60s. And then very famously, uh, she, right around this time, um, Paul Newman divorced his first wife and he, um, got together with Joanne Woodward. Uh, They were in a, they started their on-screen coupling with The Long Hot Summer, which is steamy and sexy between the two of them. And they stayed married until his death in 2008. Joanne Woodward, as of this recording, is still with us. Mm -hmm. Um, And she would be nominated several more times, as would uh, Paul Newman as well. Um, Although Paul Newman would take a lot longer to get to his Oscar. Oh, yeah, um, some she, 30 years. She would also be uh, the lead in a couple of movies directed by um, by her husband, uh, including one called Rachel Rachel, which was nominated for Best Picture, which we'll get to in about 10 years. And uh, she also would later, um, in the late 70s, win an Emmy for Supporting Actress uh, in a movie called Sybil, a TV film called Sybil, starring Sally Field, playing a woman with multiple personalities. Um, so kind of bringing that full full circle. Um, and uh, Sally Field also won an Emmy for that. So multiple personalities are award bait, apparently. Oh, yeah. People um, eat them up. Joanne Woodward's another one of our actors from the Actor Studio School of Acting. Um, she gives a very powerful method performance in the film. Um, and... I love her. She's like um, kind of a, a non-traditional Hollywood face, you know. She doesn't she doesn't look necessarily as glamorous. Oh, get this! If we're gonna talk about glamour, she made her own dress for the Oscars this year for a hundred dollars. And upon uh-huh. seeing it, Miss Joan Crawford had this to say about her gown: "Miss Woodward has set Hollywood glamour back twenty years." I had to say that. <laughs> wow. Well. <laughs> From the queen of not... glamour herself, right? <laughs> no, she didn't accept her Oscar in a bathrobe like some people. But No kidding. Come on. Uh, but no, it's okay. I'm, I, I, Joan's of a different school. Um, but Joanne Woodward is, is absolutely astounding. And I mean... I, as much as I really want to give Deborah Carr an Oscar, because she is extremely good in the movie, Heaven Knows, Mr. Allison, I just want to drive this home. Uh, she and Robert Mitchum are in the movie together, and uh, she plays a nun, and there's sexual tension between her and Robert Mitchum because they're stranded on an island together, and it's like a will-she-stay-a-nun situation. <laughs> oh my gosh, they, will she stay pure? <laughs> yeah, um... And uh, it's a really, really good movie, but it's just really, this is one of those performances that's hard to beat. 
True. And we do get Elizabeth Taylor's first Oscar nomination here for Rain Tree County, starring, co-starring her friend Monty Cliff. And this um, nomination mm-hmm. um, comes at a very precarious time in her life. Um, yeah. Of course, her husband, Michael Wilding, uh, died. Not Michael Wilding. Her husband. Like Todd. Uh, that's her first husband, Michael Wilding. Sorry, I'm getting her husband's <laughs> confused. Um, her husband, the only one. Mike Todd, died just a few days before this ceremony. Um, her husband, Mike Todd, had famously won the Oscar for producing Around the World in 80 Days just the year before this. And uh, he was in a plane crash. She was supposed to be on the plane, too. But... Um, she didn't end up going because she was sick. Right. And um, then he died. And um, the events that happened after that death are Hollywood legend. Um, because uh, the two, Mike Todd and Elizabeth Taylor were BFF with another couple, another famous Hollywood couple, um, Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher, who were mm-hmm. kind of like America's sweethearts at the time. Uh, they had, they had had two kids together. Uh, Todd Fisher was the second child. The first child, you know, is Carrie Fisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, Eddie Fisher ended up comforting Elizabeth in her grief. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and if you watch any interviews with Debbie Reynolds talking about this, she she discusses it in a way that's very, very humorous. Um, but uh, basically what ends up happening as he's comforting her, he comforts her all the way to a divorce and walking down the aisle and he becomes husband number four for Elizabeth Taylor. Um, and, uh, oh, I should mention Todd Fisher, uh, the second child of Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher, is named after... Mike Todd. Oh, wow. Like, I didn't put that close, together. Those how close those families wow. were. Wow, yeah. wow, 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 wow. Um, so it's, uh, we're talking like, and Todd Fisher was only born about a month before Mike Todd died. So that's how close they were at the time of their death. So when he went over to comfort Elizabeth Taylor, apparently Debbie Reynolds was just home taking care of the kids. Like, okay, yeah, I, I I'll take care of, and she was taking care of Elizabeth's children. She was taking care of her own children because Elizabeth already had three children at that point. Um, so I think three at that point. Um, she Elizabeth had four kids. People don't think about this, but but Elizabeth had children. Oh yeah, um, that are still with us today. That death and did not happen. Uh, happened after the voting closed, so it didn't have any impact on the on the awards. Unlike in, well, unlike the legend we'll of how that. she won her Oscar in 1960, but we'll get to that a little bit later on. <laughs> poor, poor Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, but I think this was Joanne Woodward's to win, and I think it we're setting a precedence down here in the 1950s. You can feel that like push and pull and tugging of the classic studio actors and how they were taught, you know, to act, and now this new school of acting. You really Which feel that mm-hmm. gets into the last nominee. Yes. Um, Another person who came up through MGM, um, who had been a huge star 
in the 1940s when she was when she was still a kid in, in her 19, in her 20s uh, she became a big star when she hit her 30s she kind of started to eclipse a little bit Lana Turner in the 50s in the mid 50s in particular hadn't really had a big hit film and then Peyton Place happened and Peyton Place was based on this blockbuster novel that basically lift the lid on what life was really like in small towns how everybody had dirty laundry Everybody had skeletons in their closet, and it is a very salacious soap opera film. I talked about last week, was it, about um, how much I like this series that the, that's also based on the novel from the 1960s uh, with Dorothy Malone and uh, Mia Farrow. But um, the movie is, is very glossy, very soap opera-y, uh, very studio um, in the way that it's filmed. Um, particularly in comparison with like Three Faces of Eve, Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, um, and Bridge on River Kwai in particular. Um, it's fun. It's not a great film, but it is fun. Um, but Lana Turner gives a very solid studio approved performance in the film. And even though I don't think she is a great actress, this is probably the height of what she is capable of doing. It works very well within what her range was. Definitely. So, that makes sense. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think this nomination is sort of like a culmination of appreciation these studios have for her and what she's done for them as well. Now, the interesting thing that happens is not long after the ceremony. Oh, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. With Lana Turner, the the most interesting part of her entire history um, <laughs> is the death of Johnny Stampinato. So much happens in Hollywood scandal around this ceremony. It's interesting. Um, but uh, Johnny Stampinato, who is actually a character in the film L.A. Confidential, by the way, um, he uh, was basically this gangster she was dating and he was abusive to her. And just a week and a half or so on April 4th, 1958, just, you know, a week and a half, a week after this, just a week, yeah, yeah. after the ceremony, he uh, was killed by Lana Turner's daughter, Cheryl Crane, from a previous marriage, a teenager, 14 years old, who heard the yelling and the fighting happening in the upstairs bedroom, went down to the kitchen and said she went into kind of a daze, grabbed a knife, went upstairs, opened the door, right, walked right over to him and stabbed him to death. Now, I've heard, though, there's follow-up rumors about that, that that was a cover-up and it was actually Lana Turner who did, in fact, stab him. Yeah, there were lots of... There were lots of um, conspiracy surrounding mm -hmm. that one. But I mean, Cheryl Crane, who's, uh, you know, uh, still alive to this day. Um, she has maintained that that was the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, she also later came out as a lesbian as well. Oh, there you go. Um, so she's, yeah. she's family, but, um, but, uh, she has a book about it and about her mom that I've, uh, read and it's very interesting. Um, but two of Peyton's Place nominees came in the Direction and Best Picture category, which, as we mentioned earlier, they all lined up. 
and the bridge on the River Kwai did nab both of them. This was David Lean's first win for Best Director. And I will yes. say it's it's very much deserved. We've now gotten into the era Sorry, of David Lean films where he starts to direct these epic, beautifully crafted and shot masterpieces. Movies and I do think Yes, this is definitely one of them. This is not a short movie. But I will say I when I rewatch they it, get I watched longer. it in, Yeah, I watched it in one sitting this time though. I will say when I did rewatch it, it didn't feel as long as I thought it was going well, to. It does it, move along. It it's paced really, really well. I think that you know, this one and uh, Lawrence of Olivier are the two Lawrence of Olivier, Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, Larry. Um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia are both super long. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia is much longer than this movie. Yeah. Um, and they're the ones who really justify their length. Um, I think that when he gets to Dr. Zhivago, at that point, it's becoming a little long just for the sake of being long. Mm-hmm. But um, but this one is his first long movie. Before this, believe it or not, David Lean made short films. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? And honestly, that. I think those ones are his better films. I think Brief Encounter and like Summertime his... are his best movies, personally. Those are my favorites. Oh, those yeah, are my but... favorites. So you and I also tend to side more with the the intimate little female character studies as we do with the great epic war films. <laughs> but this is, yeah, and there is a decided lack of feminine energy in this movie. Um, There's almost no women in it. In fact, um, the screenwriter and director and David Lean had to add in that female nurse character. You know what I'm talking it's about? Very unnecessary. So it's, it's a thankless role. It has nothing yeah. to do with the plot. It doesn't serve any purpose. No, it's um, dumb. It's absolutely it's, stupid. It's the most unnecessary part of the two hours and 40 minutes, whatever it is. Um, is it two hours and 40 Yeah, minutes? you're right. It's about two hours and 45 minutes. It sure is. Yeah. It's just hard to argue with the fact that it is a great film. It is a spectacle in a way that is justified with an epic story, an epic moral conundrum. Mm-hmm. Um it does an examination of war in a way that we haven't seen yet. Um, and by that, I mean, it, it really humanizes the enemy, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has this whole idea of, I don't know, to me, it felt anti-war. Did you oh, have yeah. That? No, I yeah. totally agree with you. It's, it's, this is a peculiar little film because not many people wanted to be associated with it at first because they felt it was anti-British. The book this was based off of um, actually is very closely, but the book doesn't actually tell the real story. The actual creation of this bridge and the people behind it did in fact try and sabotage it constantly, even the major general who um, Alec Guinness's character is based off of, that actual person in real life did try to sabotage the bridge on many occasions. Whereas in the movie, Alec Guinness plays this sort of perfect British role model where everything, you know, should be done just to keep the, um, uh, to keep the British people in high standing. You know, he, he's, they're given the task and British people follow through. So we're going to build this bridge, even if it is to aid the Japanese, that is still our job. 
and it's in the search for creating a high morale with the rest of the you know army prisoners so it's for good but it's also contributing to the bad and that's where alec guinness gets caught up in between you know yeah it's uh yeah and as I, as i was watching it i i I totally saw where Alec Guinness's character is coming from and and why he feels that doing the best job possible on this bridge is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But you totally understand why William Holden and the um the forces coming in to sabotage the bridge are doing what they're doing. Oh, absolutely. It, I mean, like, you, the movie does a great job of making this no good guy, no bad guy scenario. And what I think that accomplishes and what I like about this movie is that it shows there really aren't winners and losers in war. Mm-hmm. Everyone loses in war. That's the thing that, because, you know, yes, sometimes you are fighting against a true existential evil, such as Hitler and the Nazis. Yes. I mean, that's a clear right and wrong. But when it's over, you don't win because you you lost so much. Oh, yeah, both sides, no matter what. And I think the bridge is, is is a metaphor for that. I think the bridge is a metaphor for the fact that Britain may win the war, but they're going to lose. They're going to lose just as much. Definitely. I think you put it on the head. You know, there's there's no right. There's no wrong when it comes to war. And what Alec Guinness's character is fighting for the entire time is what is correct. You know, he's he always throws the the rule book, you know, the war rule book by the book in, you know, Seisu Hayakawa's face saying you're not doing this right you're not supposed to do this we're supposed to do it this way but i think you know even though he does ultimately get his way and things do start to be followed by the book he realizes that he's still in the wrong you know and he sort of looks like a complete buffoon in the end when he finally puts it all together that the bridge needs to be blown up otherwise these japanese troops are going to cross and get you know, supplies to other camps, you know, and he just forgotten about that, you know, and I think that's where the final line kind of comes in, you know, that when the movie ends, one of the soldiers looks up at all the chaos and destruction that just happened in the last 15 minutes, and he just says, madness, madness, you know, that's all war is, madness, you can't be right or wrong, there's no rule book to follow, it's literally chaos, yeah, the, it war is chaos. That is that's mm-hmm. part of the point of the movie. There, it, there is no there's a rule book. Sure, there's the Geneva Convention or whatever. But yeah, but is there a rule? There, I mean, like, is there a rule when you're just yeah. seeing who can kill each other to the point of surrender? I mean, that is. That no, is exactly. The, uh, and I also think they're trying to get the point across that like war is also just fucking pointless. Like they spent all this time building this bridge just to blow it up. You know what I mean? And obviously a lot of them didn't know that was happening. But, but like, it's poetic that yeah. the, the thing that's most poetic about the movie is that it is 
it is um, Alec Guinness, spoiler, uh, dying and fainting on the the explosive device, setting it off. He destroys his own creation in the end. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like a metaphor for how man destroys himself. Wow, that's I mean, so like, true. there's so many layers yeah. to yeah. just talking about it. This is a great movie because there are so many layers to what it is saying about war. Definitely. And I also think your your feelings for these characters, they change so often. You know, in the beginning when um, Seizu Haikawa, I think his name is Saito. I think that's his character's name as like the the commander of this prisoner of war camp he you know he's awful in the beginning he wants things run his own way and he's not afraid to break the geneva convention and hurt these people just to get his way to where he is at the end you know you really feel for him because he's only acting this way to get this bridge done on time because if he doesn't they're gonna kill him you know you start to understand the motivations behind these people and you realize even in war, there's really no good or bad person. For the most part, these people are just doing what they have to do to survive, what they think they need to do to survive. And again, you know, your your feelings and your emotions really get conflicted with who you're siding with, or should the bridge be built? Should it not be built? What do I actually feel now in this situation? You know? Yeah, no, it's, it's such a perfect little movie. Mm-hmm. I think the only bit of debate there could possibly be in these categories. I, I mean, there are two, are two other great films that were not oh, yeah. made. Um, and so we should probably touch on 12 Angry Men. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, both of them also being courtroom dramas, of course. <laughs> I mean, and 12 Angry Men also uh, is significant, significant for giving us uh, Sidney Lumet. Um, yes, we should talk about that. This is Sidney Lumet's first Best Director and Best Picture nomination. Uh, it is. And it is um, the first movie um, that he directed. That's um, right. He came from TV, yes. Because he came from TV. And he was picked from... Te- this was a. This is another... This is just like um, Marty. It was a television play that Henry Fonda wanted to bring to the screen. He's a producer on this film. Um, and he brought it to the screen. And uh, 12 Angry Men has been shown in classes ever since then. <laughs> yes. Oh, it yeah. Is, I mean, it is it is like, you know, one of the standard um, jury movies, you know? Like, how do we actually condemn a, a man to death? What, you know, do I have a shred of doubt that he could be innocent? What does that mean? You know, all these, yeah, it, again, you're right. A lot of these movies, they really do ask hard, hard questions. And it's I appreciate so that. that. They're all here with Peyton Place. Um, <laughs> That's true. I mean, uh, my God, you're talking about, my gosh, like a Japanese prisoner of war camp. You're talking about interracial marriage in Korea. I mean, Peyton Place, my God. I, I shouldn't undercond it. Peyton Place does deal with sexual assault and um but it deals with it like it would an episode of desperate housewives like yes. let's not it, this is isn't like high class yeah yeah um it's a much different situation but um yes. but uh, yeah 12 angry men is it's one of the great movies like i i 
And like it's uh, also like pretty much takes place in one location. And the cinematography and the staging, the blocking of these actors, it is incredible to watch. And you can just see the potential in Sidney Lumet. And he, I mean, he's not even, he hasn't even made his greatest films. Yeah, I mean, I think he comes to, to light much later in the 70s. Uh, is when he really puts his stamp on, you know, the Oscars and movies in general. You're talking um, about The Wiz, aren't you? I absolutely am talking about The Wiz. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no. But this is like a great early, you know, movie from... It's showing early potential from a great filmmaker in years to come. Yeah, no. Um, And, you know, at, at, we get to pair him with William Holden in about 20 years in one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, yeah. um, although he also, 1975, uh, there's a movie that has to do with uh, dogs. Listen, that is that is the Dog Day Afternoon is the supreme Sidney Lumet movie, in my humble opinion. But he we'll also get to makes that a, a superior decades. version of Murder on the Orient Express later. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah Agatha Christie. Look at that. Years ago. Speaking of Agatha Christie, <laughs> which, I mean, is a good way to transition to uh, Mr. Billy Wilder. So I just really want to drive home that witness for the prosecution. Um, you know, Twelve Angry Men is also a, it, it may be the best courtroom drama ever, but for a tr- for more of the whodunit murder mystery type of movie, witness for the prosecution is maybe my favorite. It has a great twist ending, and I will also add here someone who is not nominated is Marlena Dietrich. Mm-hmm. Um, who only got the one nomination, right? Is it one or two in the early 30s? No, I think you're right. Just um, the one, Shanghai Express? Uh, or is it uh, the other one? Morocco? Morocco? You're right. Morocco. Yep, it's Morocco. Um, but Marlena Dietrich, she has to pull off kind of a dual role in this movie. Like a triple role, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> and And she is like the perfect Hitchcock blonde, but not in a Hitchcock movie. And, and she's so, so good. I just want to really emphasize this is a great Marlena Dietrich performance and she probably should have been nominated for this. I was going to say that actually. Yeah, I agree. I think Elsa Lancaster's nomination is deserved. Um, But yeah, the, the whole reveal and twist of the movie revolves around. She could have been in lead, I think. True. Okay, there you go. Yeah, it, it truly revolves around her performance and how, what she convinces you to believe about her in every scene she's in, and it's not easy to do what she does. Yeah, no, and you have you spend the whole movie trying to decode her, basically. Yeah. Um, and Tyrone Power is also really this is right towards the end of Tyrone Power's career too, because he died uh, pretty young. Um, but uh. Basically, you you spend the whole movie kind of through Charles Lawton's perspective trying to decide whether Marlena Dietrich and Tyrone Power are telling you the truth. Mm-hmm. And if they aren't, what are they lying about? And it is a fascinating... It, it's just such a good, well Yes, truly. And I that is one... Yeah. So that is definitely one of the movies where I think saving the spo- the twist at the end is for everyone's benefit. Like you, this is a movie you just have to watch. You have to go out I and mean, watch I, it to it, get it. it you know, 
it's been a little while since I've seen it, and I couldn't even tell you the twist verbatim right now because because it is brilliant and complex. Yes. Um. But uh. But I don't remember all the specifics because it mm-hmm. it has lots of detail to it. Um, it really does. Yeah. But you genius. should see it. You should see yes. this. This is we we we've really gotten to a year where I think. Every nominee was very, very strong, and we're, yeah, you know, we're we're, I'm, we're making I'm, fun of Peyton Place, but I still like Peyton Place. I don't definitely. Know. It's a different kind of good, but it is very enjoyable to watch. And that's one thing I like about you know you have two courtroom dramas here technically, but they're very different movies. These are five different films. Yeah, and I think you know since we were. You know, we're ten. To, we're like twelve years removed from World War II. We're, you know, we've we've engaged with Korea. The Korean conflict is happening. You know, so war is very much on people's minds. And I don't think the American cinema-going public ever tires of seeing a war movie. And Bridge in the River Kwai really brought this whole different perspective of what war means. You know. And, yeah. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention. Um, the score for this movie, which apparently was written in, like, record time. It had to um, be, yes, yeah. They were uh, up against a deadline. But it did win Best Original Score, and it does include a tune that's not original, um, but it is something you associate with this film, the whistling of... It's the Colonel Bogey March. Which the first introduction to that that I had was when they whistle it in the camp in the movie The Parent Trap. And there you go. The look at the correlation movie. right there. So let's take a look at what we're going to get into next week. We have the big winner of 1958. It's going to be a sprawling musical, Gigi. I have not seen Gigi. Oh, <laughs> I have. I'm not looking forward to it. I will go in with as open a mind as I can because it has been a while since I've seen it. I just remember not enjoying it. Yeah, I know. I, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not I'm not anticipating enjoying it. But, but I'm going to try and go in with an open mind and try and enjoy it. Um, I will say it has a really good poster. Yeah, I mean, it looks gorgeous. It looks like an American in Paris, where it's filmed beautifully. It doesn't have Gene Kelly's butt. It does not. It does not. I'm not going to lie to you, Sam. I'm not excited about this. (laughs) (laughs) So join us next week, everybody, as we chat about 1958 and Gigi.